Three years ago, Bill came here. I'm very happy that Bill's returned. Uh, Bill, come on up and preach as God has led you. Well, I'd like to thank Pastors Elmore and Downey for having me here today. And pray that the rest of you are patient. The last time I was here, I spoke for two hours. Most of my presentations are at least 90 minutes. It's not very often I get to do them in person. Most of the people that listen to me, I never see. So I miss the expressions of shock and horror. I'm kidding. <laughs> I was struck by the hymn, and can it be, which we, well, which you all have just sung. I'm sorry, I'm not much of a singer. Because it fits so perfectly with this presentation that I prepared that God did indeed die for our race. And that means because the promises were made to our fathers, not to us, that he died for our entire race. We only have a share in those promises by inheritance. And I will get into that later when I demonstrate what the true faith of Abraham is, and the true faith of our fathers. This presentation is really a compendium of things that I presented over the past several years. And if anyone has read or heard my commentaries on the Minor Prophets, or, or especially my recently, recently completed Romans exegesis, all of these things will be familiar. I, um, I always have to take it for granted that nobody in, in who I'm speaking to has ever heard of my website or my work. And if we hear things that we repeat, what, if we hear things that have been repeated to us often, what I pray to do is demonstrate, even if all these things are familiar to us, is to demonstrate and edify the fact that Christian identity and Christian racism have a clear academic foundation in scripture. So I hope to at least offer a new perspective or two, even if we've all been familiar with the, um, with the topics. This is because grounds for Christian communion do not change. They never change. And the lines where Christian unity and division are drawn should indeed be very clear. We always have people who want to obfuscate those lines. And we've been warned time and time again in Scripture of the clarity of those lines and of the people and the nature of the people who infiltrate among our numbers to obfuscate those lines. And I'm, um, because of 
the personal circumstances and the isolation virtually, I only had communications with a few people that I was in when I studied Christian identity I was very much and, and still am frequently shocked that people don't understand, people in the world don't understand Christian identity the way I do that those lines those divisions that should divide us from the people in the world and and that grounds for unity that we should have aren't taught as clearly as they should be even in a lot of Christian identity venues. One of the biggest challenges which I have faced in my work is getting people to actually believe that all Israel will be saved. I don't know how you people think here, but I know what the scripture says, and that's all that's important. Paul of Tarsus made this perfectly clear in his epistle to the Romans. And in spite of the fact that the prophets of Yahweh our God also stated as much, there are still people who reject that message. To me, that's incredible all of the original apostles taught the same thing in the epistles. All Christians for 2,000 years have suffered from a burden of doubt that they should never have. That burden of doubt was never taught by the original apostles. The apostle Peter said in one Peter chapter, chapter 2, that you are a chosen race. He didn't say that you are a race that might be chosen. He didn't say that you are a race from which some of you were chosen. You are a chosen race. No exceptions. Christians are raised wondering whether they will be accepted by God at the end of their lives. With this, Perpetual doubt is sown in our minds from infancy, from youth, which causes men to turn away from the interests of their community. That doubt causes men to do that. That doubt leads to apostasy. They turn away from the interests of their community and their race, in favor of their own interests and their self-fulfillment whereby they pursue the materialistic desires of the flesh. Then when those men face difficult times, they feel abandoned by God. And because they have doubt, it is just as easy for them to abandon God. By abandoning God, those men are of no use to their communities. And instead, they work against the interest of their kinsmen because they seek to fulfill their own material needs, and that is always at the expense of the needs of the community.
But what if there was no doubt? What if, right from the beginning, we were all absolutely certain of our standing with God? What if we knew without doubt that salvation is promised not only to all of Israel, but even to our entire Adamic race, without exception. There are no exceptions. And that no other race on this planet that we perceive, we perceive them as other races, that no other race on this, on this planet has any part in such a promise. We, if we are indeed children of Adam, we are already chosen and we are already predestined that's what the scripture says all we have to do is believe it we are already predestined to have a portion in the glory of our god this is what the bible teaches and it teaches it unequivocally 1 corinthians Chapter 15, verse 22, for as in Adam, all die, all Adamites, of course, even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. There are no exceptions. Without, without that lingering doubt. as to whether or not we have a future life with our brethren, we should want all the more, because we don't have doubt, we should want all the more to serve one another earnestly, each and every one of us, knowing with absolute certainty that we are going to spend eternity with one another. That thought alone should compel us to seek to please one another, to seek to please our brethren rather than ourselves. And once we get to that point, we would never want to offend one another Because we know that we would have to live with the results of that forever. That's also why it's important to be repentant in this life of our sins and to be forgiving towards one another in this life for our sins. Because of... Um, certain differences in rather late manuscripts and that's one of the things i do in all my studies i don't just read a greek manuscript i read them all because of 
certain differences in the rather late manuscripts, not the original, early manuscripts, upon which the King James Version is based. And these are all thoroughly documented in my own commentaries. I shall quote Paul of Tarsus from the Christogenia New Testament. I published my own New Testament. Oh, people say, oh, he, wrote, he rewrote the Bible. How dare he do that? Well, I did, and we could discuss that idea at another time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul said, just as in Adam, all die. Then in that manner in Christ shall all be produced alive, but each in his own order. The first fruit, Christ, then those of the anointed, or those of Christ, at his arrival. Then later in that same chapter, Paul explained from verse 42, that in this way also is the restoration of the dead. It is sown in decay, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in honor. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. By these words of Paul's, we must understand that the spirit is sown with the body. The spirit of God is not something men get along the way if they're good boys and girls. The spirit is created with the body. Paul is stating that unequivocally. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. In the next clause is one word missing from the King James Version. And it's in all of the ancient manuscripts of the Greek, all of them. And it's the word if. And it makes a huge difference because without the if we might believe that there are natural bodies and spiritual bodies but we don't know if we have that spiritual body but with the if we're assured that we do Paul says if there is a natural body there is also a spiritual the King James Version words that last sentence without that if and that's one of those little nuances of scripture that help us have that doubt that we should never have. Paul went on to write, and just as it is written, the first man Adam came into a living soul, the last Adam into a life-producing spirit. But the spiritual was not first. We didn't come down here as spirits from heaven. We were sown here and that spirit, if we are truly children of Adam, that spirit is a natural part of our bodies as soon as we're conceived. But the spiritual was not first, rather the natural, then the spiritual. And Paul's making an analogy out of the creation of Adam in Genesis. The first man from out of earth, of soil, the second man from out of heaven. Paul is using Adam and Christ as types or analogies to describe the two natures of the Adamic man. As he explains so often elsewhere that the spirit within us is always warring with the flesh that we're made of. The first Adam represents the fleshly body of the Adamic man and Christ is the type that represents the spiritual body of the Adamic man, which we are all instilled with. <coughs> I'm sorry. 
every Adamic man has both natures. This is what distinguishes our race as being born from above, as Christ had said, and which is often mistranslated, in John chapter 3. Therefore, Paul said that we are sown a natural body and we are raised a spiritual body, and he assures us that if there is a natural body, if you have a natural Adamic body, you can be assured that there is a spiritual Adamic body and that it's within you. Look around the room. Which one of your brethren would you want to see tossed into the lake of fire? <laughs> oh, I know what he did ten years ago. Which one of your brethren would you want to see that happen to? Which fellow white man or fellow white woman would you want to see go to the lake of fire? This is a sinful world. And we were all born into it with no instructions. Now, those fortunate enough to understand Christian identity and the need to maintain the laws of our God can self-righteously exclaim that there are instructions. And indeed, we know there are. Among our number, Identity Christians, we know those instructions are right in our Bibles. A couple of mistranslations, and we can get past this or that, but we have the schematic. But who in the world actually learns that today? Just because they weren't fortunate enough to, to meet one of us and receive that message, they're all going to the lake of fire? No. Outside of a very few people who have been led to this message, Nobody in the world receives it. So, if we take a position of self-righteousness, we can all imagine a white Israelite, a person that's one of us, whose behavior is so bad that it warrants the lake of fire. But that does not mean that he or she is going to face eternal destruction. Indeed, Yahweh God has a different plan, which is fully expressed in Scripture. I'm going to go on a digression. In Book 2 of Flavius Josephus's Wars of the Judeans, they weren't Jews, describing the sects of Judea, maybe some of them, he explains that the Pharisees of his time taught that men would have eternal punishments in Hades if they engaged in certain bad behavior. With that, it can be seen that the idea of eternal punishment in hell is also, ostensibly, a part of what Christ had called the leaven of the Pharisees. But describing the beliefs of pagan Greeks, Josephus himself also explained how they too had a similar belief. And I've read most of the pagan Greek stories, and they certainly did. The pagan Greeks believed that certain bad people were going to be eternally punished in hell, and good people would go to heaven with the gods. They would go to the Isles of the Blessed in the West, or to Olympus, and party and have eternal fornication. That was heaven to the pagan Greeks, right? 
The Catholic Church never followed Christ or his apostles. Instead, when the Catholic, when the Roman Catholic Church, which was pagan from the beginning, a lot of people in Christianity think that the Catholic Church started out right and went bad. That's not true at all. There were always good men who were good Christians inside the church, but most of those priests and most of the people that created what we know as the Roman Catholic Church were always pagan. They were never Christian. When the Catholic Church developed its doctrines, they didn't follow Christ. They followed the Pharisees. They followed their ancient pagan beliefs. The idea that ultimately going to heaven or to hell is based solely upon one's behavior leads to the idea that men and women of our Adamic race are going to face destruction by God at the end of the age. More often than not, that same idea is usually accompanied by the idea that those of other races who apparently do good can somehow attain the kingdom of heaven. So the same people that want to throw a white Israelite into the lake of fire want to take a nigger and put him in the kingdom of God. I was unaware that there could be good devils, but that is generally what those people insist. These people that make that insistence have all accepted the Jewish concept of egalitarianism. Even if they deny it, they're universalists. They're egalitarians. The idea of racial equality was invented by the devils themselves. Yet, Yahshua Christ specifically states that if one is not born from above, he shall not see the kingdom of heaven. He won't see it from the inside. He won't see it from the outside. He won't see it no matter how far away he gets. I don't think you'll see anything from the lake of fire. In our Bibles, only the Adamic man has the spirit of Yahweh our God. And it is clear from Scripture that not all so-called people, and sometimes we have to call them people so people knows what so that people know what we're speaking of, not all so-called people have the Spirit of God. A clear example is right in Scripture in 1 John chapter 4. John, in 1 John chapter 4, he's not talking about disembodied spirits when he says try every spirit to see whether it's from God he's talking about embodied spirits he's talking about the ideas which men profess as they preach the gospel and if they're putting anybody but sheep into the kingdom they're not from God we have just seen Paul of Tarsus explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that just as in Adam all men die, in Christ all men will be made alive. And that resurrection is through the Spirit, whereas if one has a natural Adamic body, one can be certain, with all certainty, there's no doubt, if one has a natural Adamic body, one can be certain that he or she has a spiritual Adamic body 
And it is through that spiritual body that the resurrection is performed by God. That is why the scripture says that it is the spirit that produces life in John chapter 6. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak to unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Therefore, we may perceive that eternal life is a feature which was engineered by the creator into the physical being of the Adamic man. If one is an Adamic man, one is a child of Yahweh God, born from above, then the Spirit of God within the Adamic man is a part of your inherent nature. You can't not have it. With this, the wisdom of Solomon, a book which should be in the Bible, it's found in the Apocrypha. With this, the wisdom of Solomon agrees in its second chapter where it says in verse 23 for God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity the image of God that we are made in is an eternal image when considering the words of the New Testament, it is important to note that the original purpose, the original purpose of the Adamic man as the pinnacle of the creation of God was for him to have eternal life. The very next verse in that same chapter of the Wisdom of Solomon says that, nevertheless, through envy of the devil came death into the world and they that hold of his side do find it. This envy of the devil is portrayed in Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent said to Eve, you shall not surely die. And she, having been deceived, and having found the tree desirable, had partaken of its fruit, and she did die. She died, and her husband died. And because of the error, the sin, which the allegory describes, all of their race were subject to death after them. The Apostle John explained the remedy to this situation, where he said in chapter 3 of his first epistle, He that commits sin, and that word committeth is not a good word. It's really not. That word is poieo. And poieo in Greek means to make or to create, where there's another verb that means sin. So it's not saying he that sins is of the devil. And I have a lengthy paper on this that I, that I wrote 10 years ago. It's saying he that makes or creates sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever, and this is important, whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. Does that mean we don't sin? Of course not. We all sin. We've all 
sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, there is only one other way to understand and reconcile these two passages. In the Psalms, David had written, and Paul quotes it, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And Paul cites that passage in Romans chapter 4. Then Paul writes in verse 16, Therefore it is of faith that by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed. If your seed remaineth in you, you kept your race and you will inherit that promise. Not only to that which is of the law, in other words, not only to those who keep the law, but also to that which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And I omitted a few words in italics that the King James added in when I quoted that passage, which were unduly added by the King James translators. So, all of the descendants of Abraham are, are assured to inherit the promises of God regardless of whether or not they have kept the laws of God. Imagine that. But the term faith of Abraham is always misunderstood. People think, oh, I have to have faith like Abraham. No, that's not what it says. It says faith of Abraham. The children of Abraham do not have to keep the law. Nor do they have to be as good as Abraham, or as believing as Abraham. The phrase, faith of Abraham, refers to what Abraham himself believed. It does not refer to what his seed may believe. Abraham believed in God, and that he would keep his word, and that is all that matters. Because we're saved, we have communion with Christ, our race was spared on account of the promises made to the fathers, not on account of us. None of us deserve it. The faith of Abraham is that Abraham believed in us. If we're descendants of Abraham, the faith of Abraham is that Abraham believed in us, that his seed would be greatly multiplied, would become many nations. But Abraham did not believe in niggers. Abraham did not believe in Chinamen. Abraham did not believe in bastards. And they do not have any part in these promises. So, as Paul explains in Galatians, the promises to Abraham are not annulled by the giving of the law. But, as Paul explains in Romans, we know, and because we know that we have this assurance, we should all the more desire to keep the law. Because we know we're going to live forever. Because we run the race, Mark wrote, running the race, we walk the walk and we run the race for a reward. But our salvation is guaranteed on account of Abraham and what Abraham believed. If you are a child of Abraham, and not a child of fornication, then Abraham believed in you, and therefore you are a recipient of the promises of God to Abraham, regardless of what you yourself do, or what you yourself believe. 
The first century admonitions to accept Christ, which were made by the apostles, were designed, were purposed to separate the wheat from the tares at that time. And those who accepted Christ were thereby persuaded that they had a definite assurance of salvation. However, the promise of eternal life is not to Abraham and his seed only. It is to the entire Adamic race. It was the children of Abraham, and especially the children of Isaac, through whom world history would develop and evolve. They were the focus of the gospel of God from the time Isaac was placed on the altar. And the whole rest of the Adamic race was let go to whatever fate would befall them because God chose Isaac in order to show us his righteousness. And we have two men. We have Isaac. From Isaac, we have Jacob and we have Esau. And God knew ahead of time that Esau would be a sinner. Esau's sin was fornication, race mixing. That's why Paul called him a, called him a fornicator and a profane man in Hebrews chapter 13. When people wonder about Esau's sin, don't argue about it over Genesis. It's clear in Genesis, but don't argue about it there. Just go see what Paul said about it. Esau was a profane man and a fornicator. It is found in... Um, Genesis 3.22, the first promise of salvation for our race. And Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. And let's see what John said one more time in his first epistle. He that commits sin, or he that makes or produces sin is of the devil for the devil sins from the beginning for this purpose the son of god was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil whosoever is born of god does not commit sin for his seed remaineth in him and he cannot sin because he is born of god how could christ destroy the works of the devil at the beginning the devil instigated the situation which the Adamic man, by which the Adamic man found death. The Adamic man is told to cling to the tree of life in order to have life. Once we understand that the tree of life is Christ and that he is the vine, while each and every Adamic man and woman is a branch, we may see that the tree of life is an allegory for the Adamic race, which is opposed in the garden to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So if the Adamic man clings to his own tree or race, then his seed remaineth in him, and in the end, sin will not be imputed to him. Christ could only destroy the works of the devil if each and every member of the Adamic race has eternal life, which was the original purpose of the creation of God before the devil got involved. Of course, that involvement was also the plan of God, because there is, and it would be a whole other presentation to explain it, there is a greater purpose than this material life which we now have. People who doubt that all Israel shall be saved, 
do not understand that larger purpose, that larger transcendental picture. Considering these scriptures, we may read from Romans chapter 5, where Paul explains this same thing. I am going to read this from the Christogenia New Testament, but I am going to adjust some of the language so that familiar terms are used rather than the literal ones I used in my translation. For instance, um, hamartia is the Greek word for sin, but it really means to fail or to miss the mark and or to commit an error, so to fall short. I could keep going. I translate it literally as error or, or as fault or, or as failure, and I'll translate it as sin here so that we, hearing the familiar language, I don't confuse anyone. Romans 5 from verse 12, for this reason, just as by one man sin entered into the world, and by that sin death, and in that manner death is passed to all men on account that all have sinned. In other words, we, well, we can't really blame our first father because any one of us would have probably screwed up the, in much the same manner. For until the law, and Paul makes a parenthetical remark from Romans 5.13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not accounted, there not being law. And, and we always think, well, the children of Israel, they're better than the rest of the Adamic race because they got the law and we all broke it. We're worse than the Adamic race. We're, we're, the children of Israel are lower, are worse than the rest of the Adamic race because we all knew the will of God and we all sinned just like the rest of the Adamic race. The children of Israel sinned just like the Assyrians sinned, just like the, the Babylonians, who there were a lot of Kenites in Babylon, but there were a lot of Adamites too, just like the Persians, just like the Egyptians. We sinned the same way and we knew better. We had the law of God. We still blew it, right? So we're not better than the rest of the Adamic race. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not accounted. There not being law. But death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not committed a sin resembling the transgression of Adam, who is an image of the future. And in the words of Paul, and I would add that the eternal life, which our first father had, is an image of what is to come. That's an image of the future. But should not, as was the transgression, in that manner also be the favor. Indeed, if in the transgression of one many die, much greater is the favor of Yahweh, and the gift in favor, which is of the one man, Yahshua Christ, in which many have great advantage. Just as in Adam all men die, in Christ all men shall be made alive. And not, Romans 5.16, and not then by one having sinned is the gift. Indeed, the fact is that judgment of a single one is for condemnation, but the favor is from many transgressions into a judgment of acquittal. For if in a transgression of one, death has taken reign through that one, much more is the advantage of the favor and the gift of justice they are receiving in life they will reign through the one Yahshua Christ. So then, as that one transgression is for all men for a sentence of condemnation, in this manner 
then through one decision of judgment for all men is for a judgment of life. So if you are a child of Adam, it is already determined that one decision of judgment was Christ on the court, on the cross. That one decision of judgment was God's deciding that he was going to come as a man and die to release Israel from the law so that they could be forgiven of their sins. Paul explains that two chapters later in Romans chapter 7. If you are a child of Adam, it is already determined that you shall have eternal life long before you even live. There's a greater purpose, even for the horrible sins that some of us commit here. Therefore, even as through the disobedience of one man, the many were set down as sinners. In this manner, then, through the obedience of one, the many will be established as righteous. Moreover, the law entered an addition that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, favor exceeded beyond measure that just as sin reigned in death, so then favor shall reign through justice for eternal life through Yahshua Christ our Lord. Now, this is not antinomianism. We need the law. But we, knowing that we have these promises, should all the more want to keep the law. Christianity is volunteerism. Yahweh God will reward those of us who submit to his will in this life. And while all Adamic men have eternal life, if you read Daniel chapter 12, all Adamic men aren't going to be happy with it. They're not going to be pleased. In Romans chapter 6 and 7, Paul goes on to explain man's need to keep the laws of God in spite of the fact that he shall be justified apart from the laws of God. Therefore, Christianity is volunteerism in subjecting oneself to the will of God. In the end, as the scripture says, every knee shall bow. Some of us will bow in this life, and we, doing that, seek a greater reward. Those of us who reject God for this entire life, they may not enjoy their salvation, but all of Israel will be saved and our entire Adamic race has eternal life or the word of God fails. We're in Romans chapter 5. Paul explains that the entire Adamic race has life in Christ. He does not make any exceptions for particular sinners. In fact, the Apostle Peter explained in his first epistle that even those sinners who died at the time of the flood, Noah's flood, received the gospel and were released from that bondage in which they had been held because of their apostasy from God. For few men, few men have sinned beyond them until this day when the same transgressions are being repeated once again, and we find ourselves as it was in the days of Noah. Neither does Paul make any exception for particular sinners when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that as in Adam all men die, that in Christ all men, meaning Adamic men, shall be made alive. 
the promises of Yahweh God in the Old Testament, they don't make any exceptions either. As Paul explained in Romans chapter 5 and elsewhere, for the rest of the Adamic race, sin is not imputed because there was no law. Yet Abraham's seed were going to inherit the world, and they did. And this is, as far as I know, it's not even taught well enough in identity Christianity. It is a little-known fact of history that the Parthians of the East, who ruled all the way to India at the time of Christ, from the Euphrates River all the way to India, the Romans and the Dorian Greeks of the Mediterranean, the Celts and Phoenicians of the West in the British Isles in what we know today as France and Scandinavia, and the Scythians of the North, which were the Germanic peoples, all of them were the seed of Abraham. All of them. And they dominated the world by the time of Christ. The seed of Abraham already inherited the world. The world as it was then known. All those Genesis 10 nations of the old world, of the world of Abraham, they were all moved in on and taken over by the dispersions of the children of Israel by the time of Christ. Now there's a greater fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, but the promise was literally fulfilled by the time of Christ. Whatever survived by that time of the other Adamic nations were eventually either destroyed in race mixing or because the children of Israel had grown over the entire white world by the time of Christ, they were amalgamated into the rest of the Adamic, uh, the rest of the Adamic race was amalgamated into the children of Israel. Now, historically, there's a few tribes in Europe that we should generally be able to identify as Jephthite, and that's only known through ancient history, but even those have many of the children of Israel among them. Shem, Jephth does indeed already dwell in the tents of Shem. The children of Israel have a special relationship with God distinct from the rest of the Adamic race, that is true. But in reality, they're no better than the rest of the Adamic race. Yet, speaking of the mercy of God, which God promised for the children of Israel, we must ask this. Whose sins are not cleansed? I'd like to see that in Scripture. We read from the Word of God in Jeremiah chapter 33. And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return. We're still seen as being in captivity. We still haven't returned to God. Many of us as individuals have been reunited in our God, to our God through Christ. And those people, we pray, have the greater reward because we're trying to run the race. We're trying to keep his laws now and obey him now. But we still, as, as national units, even though we've been Christian nations, we're not ultimately reconciled to Christ. That doesn't happen until the second coming. In Jeremiah chapter 33, And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return, and will build them as at the first. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities, 
whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. This promise is also seen in Jeremiah chapter 31, where together with the promise of the new covenant, we see Yahweh attest in verse 34 that I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. There are Israelites in ancient Israel and in ancient Judah right in front of the temple of God in the presence of God himself there were Israelites who were race mixing there were Israelites who were doing many horrible things even passing their firstborn sons those who should have been the family priests they were passing them into the fires of Moloch and Yahweh says I will remember their sins no more and I will pardon all of their iniquities how many people today are as horrible as those ancient Israelites? I know we could find a few, but it's not many. There are other places in the prophets where we see the promise that Yahweh God will cleanse all of the sins of all of the children of Israel. And there are no exceptions stated in any of those promises. One other example is found in the Messianic prophecy of Micah chapter 7 where we read from verse 19, he will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob. The truth is the promise of mercy and election. And the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. There are no passages in scripture. Not one which can make Jeremiah a liar. There are no passages in Scripture which can make Micah a liar. When we see conflicts in Scripture, unless they can be proven to be bad translations or interpolations, and they do exist, when we see conflicts then we are taking one passage or another out of context and we must reread those passages and reform our understanding scripture does not conflict with itself if there are sins for which Joshua Christ did not die then there are iniquities for which he was not bruised yet Isaiah chapter 53 insists that Christ was bruised for all we like sheep, no exceptions, all we like sheep who had gone astray. And once again, there are no exceptions. Israelites who do not accept the scriptures which state so clearly that Yahweh will forgive all of the sins of the children of Israel, of all the children of Israel, shall find themselves in contention with God. They elevate themselves to be judges of the will of God better than God himself. James spoke of those who would judge the law in James chapter 4. We can't become judges of the law. In Luke chapter 7, Joshua Christ had spoken to a Pharisee named Simon, in whose house he was attending a feast. The Pharisee was offended when the woman, who was known to be a sinner, was anointing his head and cleaning his feet and did not cease from what she was doing and the Pharisee said 
the Pharisee thought that she was a sinner and Christ knew his thoughts right away and straightened them out. And he said, you gave me no kiss, but this woman, since I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil you did not anoint, but this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. The Gospel account repeats the same theme in many other places. Those of us who have transgressed the most are the most likely to be the most grateful when we are forgiven. But those of us who have not transgressed so greatly are the most susceptible to an attitude of self-righteousness. We must learn to be humble and accept the forgiveness which Christ has extended to all of our brethren. And Paul discusses that at length in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and he's speaking about that fornicator from 1 Corinthians. And he says in part, For the love of Christ constrains us, because this we judge, that if one died for all, then all were dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So which Israelite has not been redeemed by Christ? And if Yahweh has redeemed Israel, which Israelite is he unable to purchase back from sin? Upon examination of the context of Isaiah chapter 28, it is evident that the word of Yahweh addresses Israel and the drunkards of Ephraim, where it says, Wherefore, hear ye the word of the Lord, ye scornful men that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with hell we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, meaning their pending judgment, it shall not come unto us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hid ourselves. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, and we all know this is a messianic prophecy, a sure foundation. He that believes shall not make haste. Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet, and the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies and the water shall overflow the hiding place. And your covenant with death, these are those people sacrificing their firstborn sons to Moloch and practicing all sorts of paganism and thinking that they could hide behind the things of the world and escape the wrath of God. And your covenant with death shall be disannulled and your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then ye shall be trodden down by it. Even though the ancient Israelites made a covenant with death, when they abandoned their God and all of the horrible things which they did in relation to that covenant with death, it would not do them any good. 
In other words, the Israelite cannot unsave himself. The Israelite cannot unredeem himself no matter what he or she does. Therefore, we see in Isaiah chapter 52, Shake thyself from the dust, arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith Yahweh, ye have sold yourselves for naught, they sold themselves into sin. Ye have sold yourselves for naught, and you shall be redeemed without money. Then, in Hosea chapter 13, the word of God says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be like plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from my eyes. The Apostle John said that Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Yahshua Christ destroys the works of the devil by destroying the grave of the Adamic man and restoring that man to eternal life. In agreement with this same thing, Yahshua Christ explains in chapter 10 of the Gospel of John, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them from my hand. My Father, which gave them to me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. We can do nothing to remove ourselves from the hand and the will of our God. He may chastise us in our disobedience, but Yahweh created the Adamic man to be the image of his own eternity. We cannot save ourselves, and we cannot unsave ourselves. Paul of Tarsus tells us that we were bought with a price, and we are not our own. Therefore, our destiny does not rely upon our behavior. We all have eternal life with God. But, the two-edged sword, we better take care of one another, because if I screw you over in this life, I don't want to have to live with that forever. Wow, that's a burden. That's a responsibility. That's an obligation. It is his will that we comply. And ultimately, every knee shall bow to his will. Not one of the children of Adam shall be destroyed. Concerning the children of Israel, this is explicit in the Old Testament where it says in Isaiah chapter 45, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. In other words, there's no denying that this prophecy is going to be eternal truth that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, In Yahweh have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In Yahweh all the seed of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. All of the seed of Israel shall be justified without exception. Concerning, I'm sorry, 
Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that even the man who has no good works whatsoever will still be preserved by God. There he says from verse 11, for another foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work to what sort it is. If any man's work abides, which he has built thereupon, obviously the, the, the gold and the silver and the precious stones, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, the wood, the hay, and the stubble, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. If you've been a useless dolt your entire life and never did your brethren any good, you'll still be saved. Yet so as by fire. And that fire, as Peter explains, that fire represents the fiery trials which we suffer in the world in this life. The entire paradigm that's taught in these mainstream churches, these denominational churchianity, the entire paradigm concerning sin, salvation, and repentance is wrong. They must have it wrong. I'll tell you why they must have it wrong. They must have it wrong because their entire paradigm concerning creation is wrong. Yahweh only admitted having created the Adamic race of man. In reality, only the Adamic race can properly be called man. There are many ways in the prophets and in the history of our race that we can know with all certainty that all of those children of Noah, they were all white. And that historically, the entire white race which we know from archaeology and secular history, they were all children of Noah. And none of them, not one, belonged to the other races. Not one of those nations. Now, there were people of those nations that mixed with the other races. But that doesn't mean that Yahweh created them. They are coming to being through the breaking of his law and the rebellion against his creation. So you can't blame God for them. They came, they came into existence through sin. Now there's a divine will of God and there's a permissive will of God. And the permissive will of God allows us to live with our sins. They're all around us. Maybe not so much in Alexandria, but just across the river in Cincinnati. <laughs> that was a convenient metaphor last night. The other races were not created by God. They're not found in the Bible. I know what you've taught, been taught in Christian identity traditionally, and it's wrong. I have um, a series of podcasts called Pragmatic Genesis, which prove from the original languages and beyond doubt that there was only one Adamic man created by Yahweh and that is our race and the details of that I can establish fully in another presentation a lot of people want to um, 
teach and think that these non-white races, they're the beasts of creation. I'm sorry, no, they're not. And we'll see why. Because everything Yahweh created was good. And when we get to the other end of the Bible, to the Revelation, none of them are good. The only alternative in relation to the, um, the existence of the other races that we can see in Genesis is that they are corruptions of God's creation because the sin of the fallen angels, as we're told in so many places, was that they had corrupted, corrupted God's creation. Collectively, all these other races are branches on the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which was in the garden even before Adam was placed there. And this is evident because when we examine the New Testament, in all the words of Christ and his apostles, there are only two kinds of so-called people, and only one of those kinds are really people. The two kinds are described as wheat and tares, sheep and goats, or sons and bastards. There are never a third category. There is never a third category, a neutral category of people. You have to fit in one category or the other. Wheats and tares, sheep and goats, sons and bastards. When the Son of Man returns, he will gather all nations and separate them as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. How does that happen? Does the shepherd ask the sheep, have you been good today? No, you're a goat. Go over there. No, that's not how that happens. The sheep and the goats are separated on sight. There's no third category. There's no neutral category that we could call people that we could imagine are not sheep and not goats. Well, sometimes in the scripture, the non-Adamic hominids are referred to as beasts, that does not mean that they were the beasts of God's creation. And even if certain of them were, they are beasts, and therefore, according to the law of God, they can never be men. They can never be people. The apostles themselves considered the spots in our feast of charity to be natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed which we see also is the fate, the same fate of the goats, the tares, and the bastards. But everything that God created was good, and none of it was intended to be taken and destroyed. Noah was taken out of his way to preserve the beasts of God's creation, and therefore God did not create those beasts which Peter describes as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. But we must know that the goats, the tares, and the bastards of these New Testament parables are all of the devil, allegorically, because they are all the flood from the mouth of the serpent in Revelation chapter 12, which the devil employs in the persecution of the woman, who is Israel. All of the so-called people in the world, meaning the non-whites, and Mark and I have discussed whether or not we should call them people, but sometimes we're just stuck having to, they are all collectively Satan. They are Satan. Now, there's more to Satan than that, but they are Satan. Think about it. Satan means adversary. That's what the word means. 
we would assert that anyone created contrary to Yahweh's law of kind after kind is a devil by nature. When Christians are faced with unrepentant sinners, we expel them even when they're our brethren, it's the law of God, we expel them from our company and our community. Doing so, we force them into the arms of the other races or even of our own people in the world who have rejected God and are therefore to be treated no differently than the other races while they're in the flesh. God uses these. God uses these other races to judge sinners. That lesson's told over and over again in the book of Judges and the other Old Testament writings. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul speaks of an unrepentant fornicator and he instructs the assembly to deliver such a one to Satan for destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Likewise, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul spoke of two men who had betrayed the gospel of God. And he said, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went on before thee, that thou mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Being delivered unto Satan for destruction of the flesh, the lesson not to blaspheme is realized, or, or I'm sorry, is not realized until it is too late for this life, but it must be taken into the next, and that is the life which truly matters. So, when we pray for our sinful brethren that remain in their sin, we pray for Yahweh to take them out. We pray for our God to remove them. Why? Once they're removed, they're no longer a disgrace to us. Once they're removed, their flesh is destroyed, they'll no longer sin, but their spirit will be preserved in the day of Christ. Here are the true and most certain grounds for unity among Christians. Understanding that the message of the gospel of Christ is a message of racial redemption and reconciliation to Yahweh our God. If we were all taught this properly from the beginning, we would have no doubt and we would have no confusion as to our purpose in this world. And with just a little more understanding, which I'm sorry I can't get into today, we would have no doubt as to the purpose of our very existence. How may more of us I'm sorry, I have a typo. How many more of us would realize at an early stage of our lives just how important that new commandment is, which Joshua Christ had given to his disciples, that we must love one another as he had loved us? It would be very important to us if we were at an early age, if we were taught the truth from the beginning. If we all started off in this life with a firm foundation in Christ, 
we would have far fewer sinners among us than we have now, knowing with certainty that we must live with one another forever, we understand and we can truly appreciate the need for God's law and the need for that love which we are commanded to have for one another. Now that we have discussed the grounds for unity, we must also understand the grounds for division. In order to do this, I'm going to embellish upon a presentation I gave in an article and a podcast over two years ago, which I called Scatterers and Gatherers. Because sometimes it's good to repeat myself, I guess. Many identity Christians do not get, do not understand the absolute totality and clarity of the race issue in the Bible. And they often end up obfuscating, ma making um, smears in the lines which should be absolutely clear. There is no honest maybe concerning race in Scripture. Some of them would say stupid things such as, oh, only the wicked Edomites are going to be destroyed by God. And they love to quote Obadiah, verses 17 and 18, to prove that. Only the Edomites are going to be destroyed. And those same fools fail to read Obadiah 15 and 16. And Obadiah 15 and 16 read, For the day of Yahweh is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as you have drunk, Upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yeah, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down. And they shall be as though they had not been. What are they drinking? They're going to drink the cup of Yahweh's wrath. The holy mountain is not a place in Palestine. That's crazy. The holy mountain is rather an allegory for the children of Israel. We, the race, we are the holy mountain. From Obadiah, as well as from Micah, from Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39, from the Revelation, chapter 19, rest assured that all of these non-Israelites among the white race today are here to be utterly destroyed for the ultimate glory of Yahweh our God. Because he told us to keep separate, and we just won't do it. So we cannot obfuscate the race issue in Scripture. Yahshua Christ links three concepts. He links these concepts without doubt in Matthew chapter 12. And those three concepts are scattering and gathering, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and good and bad trees. Here it is from the King James Version, from verse 30 of Matthew chapter 12. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathers not with me scatters abroad. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men. So we see here that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the equivalent of gathering contrary to Christ and causing his sheep to be scattered. Christ says that himself because he that is not with me is against me and he that gathers not with me scatters. 
Christ says, Wherefore, I say unto you, on account of that, I say unto you, because of that, I say unto you. So, because of that, he talks about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit not being forgiven. Now, you may imagine blasphemy of the Holy Spirit to include some other sins, and that's fine. I won't argue with that. But, if you're gathering anything but sheep to the sheepfold, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And whoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Now there's one other concept which is linked. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. Now, how could Christians make a tree? How could Christians make a tree either good or evil? Except by sexual reproduction. In another place, Yahshua again mentions gathering, along with good and corrupt trees, where he links these three concepts with two other concepts, which are the straight gate and false prophets, who are not truly sheep, but who are really wolves. From Matthew chapter 7, Enter ye in at the straight gate, the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there be many which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads unto life, and there be few that find it. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorns, or figs? figs of thistles. Even so, every tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. There are no good people amongst the mixed races. It's not possible. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Where Christ says, even so, in verse 17 of that passage, he asks, do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, in verse 17, he is telling us that corrupt trees are thistles and thorns and things which men should not gather in the place of grapes and figs. Corrupt trees are wolves in place of sheep. Men shouldn't gather them. Men don't gather figs from thorns. Men don't gather sheep from goats. Because Christ himself has clearly linked these concepts together for us. It is not improper to list and to evaluate all of these things in order to determine just what these symbols which he uses represent. First, we shall list these five concepts one more time, and we'll list them all together this time. Scattering and gathering, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the straight gate, false prophets, and good and corrupt trees. 
While many men have long attempted to understand each of these things in isolation by themselves, they can only truly be understood in relation to one another because Jesus Christ has related all these things to one another. He wasn't changing the topic as he moved from grapes from thorns onto wolves in sheep's clothing. So we'll have a short discussion of each of the five. Scattering and gathering. The same Yahshua Christ who said in John chapter 10, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. That same Christ said in Matthew chapter 15, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The same Yahshua Christ who said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known of mine, is that God incarnate who said to the children of Israel in Amos 3.2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Since Yahweh has only known Israel, we see why there will be weeping of gnashing and gnashing of teeth when many men who claim to be his followers receive the answer, get away from me, I never knew you. The children of Israel were punished in the destruction of their ancient kingdom, being cast out from the sight of Yahweh their God and taken into captivity by the Assyrians and Babylonians. Yet, Israel, the children of Israel, the seed of Israel, are promised a later regathering and a return to Yahweh their God in Christ. All of the promises of this later gathering of Israel are exclusive to Israel. For that reason, the Apostle Paul later writes in Romans chapter 8, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified. All of the children of Israel are justified in advance. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. These can only be those same people of Amos 3.2, which Paul's epistles demonstrate in many other places. As Christ also said, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Those who are chosen were created in that same manner for that same purpose. And if we are created by God in God's will, how can we escape? We can't unsave ourselves. A few examples of this gathering of Israel. Psalm 106. And some of the later psalms weren't written by David. This isn't a psalm of David. This is a psalm of Asaph. Asaph wrote this psalm in captivity in Babylon. Save us, O Yahweh our God, and gather us from among the heathen to give thanks unto thy holy name and to triumph in thy praise. Blessed be Yahweh God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Psalm 107. O give thanks unto Yahweh, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, 
whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered them out of the lands from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south. Now, of course, this hasn't happened yet. The psalm itself is a promise of the things to come. The Gospel of Luke affirms in Luke chapter 1 that the purpose of Christ is to save us from our enemies in its opening chapter, Luke 171, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Isaiah chapter 11, and he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Isaiah chapter 43, fear not for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. Jeremiah chapter 29, I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you. Jeremiah 31, hear the word of Yahweh, O ye, o ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. Jeremiah chapter 32, Behold, I will gather them out of all countries whither I have driven them in my anger and in my fury and in great wrath and will bring them again unto this place and will cause them to dwell safely. Ezekiel chapter 20, And I will bring you out from the people and will gather you out of the countries wherein ye are scattered. Luke chapter 13, But he shall say, I tell you, I know not whence you are. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And nobody can imagine that these people being gathered from the east, north, west, and south in Luke 13 are some kind of different people than these people scattered in Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, where they're all promised that they themselves would be regathered in Christ. They are the sheep, the ancient Israelites who were scattered, are the lost sheep who were gathered, and Christ says, he who does not gather with me scatters. We see in Isaiah chapters 56 that Yahweh God is the God who gathers the outcasts of Israel. And there are no promises to gather anyone but Israel to the end days gathering of Israel. Do men gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles? Of course they do not. Therefore, since all of the promises of his regathering of the children of Israel are exclusive to the children of Israel, it is only the children of Israel whom the presumed gatherers are obliged to seek out. Therefore, attempting to gather anything but sheep to the sheepfold, one is not gathering with Christ. He who is not with me is against me, and one makes himself a scatterer rather than a gatherer because when you bring a wolf in here you're going to cause most of these sheep to take off and be scattered
By attempting to add wool, swine, or dogs to the sheepfold, one causes the sheep to be scattered. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 1. Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith Yahweh. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people. Ye have scattered my flock and driven them away, and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doing, saith Yahweh, and I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries whither I have driven them, and will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith Yahweh. And that too is a messianic prophecy. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the second concept of the five in our list. The Holy Spirit is a facet of the being of Yahweh God, who demands of the children of Israel in Leviticus chapter 19 to be holy as he is holy. And Yahweh spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak ye unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh your God, am holy. The Hebrew word for holy is kadash, Strong's number 6918. It means sacred or set apart. Its Greek equivalent is hagios. And hagios more fully means set apart for the purposes of a god in the secular Greek language. The only people in all of history who were dedicated to the purposes of Yahweh at his command were those in the loins of Isaac. And in that is the promise to Abraham. In Isaac shall thy seed be called. Genesis 21:12. Of these were the children of Jacob to whom the promises fell. And Paul described them as vessels of mercy in Romans chapter 9. And also the children of Esau who Paul described as vessels of destruction in Romans chapter 9. That Esau forfeited his birthright because he was a race mixer and took wives of the daughters of Canaan is evident in the opening verses of chapter 27 of the book of Genesis, where Jacob is told that if he took a wife from the women of his own kinfolk, that the promises to Abraham would fall upon him, and he did it. In Hebrews chapter 12, Paul called Esau a profane man and a fornicator, which, as Paul used that same term in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, means that Esau was a race mixer. For the children of Israel, this holiness which they obtained through Isaac is reinforced in Exodus chapter 19, where it is a part of the terms of the Old Covenant, where it says, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which Moses spoke to the children of Israel. A holy nation in biblical terms means a nation set apart for the purposes of Yahweh our God, separated from all other nations. Therefore Peter, knowing that his intended audience was the children 
of those same Israelites dispersed in antiquity, and knowing that this plan of God's for the children of Israel has not changed with the new covenant, makes a direct appeal to the words of God found in both Exodus chapter 19 and Hosea chapter 1, which, which contains a prophecy which also concerns the children of Israel exclusively. And this is found in Peter's first epistle in chapter 2. But you are a holy, or a, I'm sorry, but you are a chosen generation, the King James Version has. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a nation set apart and dedicated to the purposes of God, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness, who was in darkness. The people, the ancient Israelites of the captivity are described in Isaiah as being in darkness. Into his marvelous light, which in times past were not a people, but now are the people of God. That's a direct reference to Hosea 1.10, where it's prophecy that the children of Israel would be taken into captivity and would be not a people. But it was promised in Hosea chapter 1 that those same people taken in captivity who would be not a people would be called the children of God where it was said to them that they were not a people. So we see that Peter is citing the fulfillment of the prophecy of Hosea. He's talking to the children of those same people taken away by the ancient captivities of the children of Israel, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy. That's living proof of this interpretation, because nobody else required mercy. Nobody else is, nobody else fits into the historical context of mercy, except the ancient children of Israel that had not obtained mercy as Hosea explained it, but who would obtain mercy in the future as Hosea had promised, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Therefore, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which in Matthew chapter 12, Yahshua Christ connects to both scattering and gathering and the making of a tree, good or corrupt, must mean speaking against the command that Israel be a holy and separate people. The plan to ruin Israel through race mixing is as old as Balaam and Balak and the Moabites in Numbers chapter 25. The straight gate is the third concept, the third of these concepts which Christ himself had linked. Yahshua Christ is the door of the sheep. He came only for the sheep. No one gets to the Father except through him, so nobody gets to God except the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Nobody else has a chance. Of course, he was not talking to anyone but Israel when he spoke this parable. None of the other races were ever candidates. Israel alone has the promises of redemption and salvation mentioned throughout the Bible. The city of God described in Revelation, the end of the Bible, has on its gates the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. The gate is straight indeed. False prophets. The fourth concept which Christ himself links together in these two sections of scripture. 
There are two different types of false prophets described by Paul. Wolves among the sheep seeking to devour the flock, and sheep seeking to make their own way. This is found in Acts chapter 20 from verse 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Here Christ warns about wolves in sheep's clothing, seeking to devour the sheep. It is the averred purpose of Yahshua Christ to gather the sheep. Wolves only seek to enter the sheepfold in order to rob the sheep. Yahshua Christ linked the false prophets who are inwardly ravening wolves to those who would gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles in Matthew chapter 7. The two concepts are inextricably linked. Therefore, the reference to false prophets must be a reference to those universalists who would insist upon gathering something other than sheep to the sheepfold. These, these are those men who would cause the scattering and destruction of the sheep. These are those spots. Jude talks about those infiltrators, those men of old. Jude talks about those spots, and Peter mentions them as stains and disgraces, feasting among us without fear and having eyes full of adultery. Christ never told his followers to feed anything but sheep. There are not wolves, dogs, goats, pigs, or swine who are fed and then somehow become sheep. Christ told us to only feed sheep in the first place. That concept of wolves, dogs, goats, and pigs becoming sheep is found nowhere in Scripture. Rather, they must be sheep in the first place and then they may be fed. Following his resurrection, Yahshua Christ told Peter three times that if he loved him, he must feed his sheep. The story of the Israelites as the sheep of Yahweh God goes way back into the Old Testament, and therefore no one but the lost people of the house of Israel could ever be his sheep. Psalm 74, O God, why hast thou cast us off forever? Why does thine anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? Remember thy congregation, which thou hast purchased of old, the rod of thine inheritance, which thou hast redeemed. This Mount Zion, that describes the people, not some hill in Palestine. This Mount Zion, where thou hast dwelt. If we understand that Yahweh dwelt in Mount Zion, well, guess what? The temple wasn't on Mount Zion. The temple wasn't the real dwelling of Yahweh. It's a type for the people of Israel. When Mount Zion is referred to in Scripture, it means the children of Israel in their dispersions, wherever they are. 
lift up thy feet unto the perpetual desolations, even all that the enemy has done wickedly in the sanctuary. Thine enemies roar in the midst of thine congregations. They set up their end signs for signs. And how is that not the condition we have all over the world today? Jeremiah chapter 50. Israel is a scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First, the king of Assyria has devoured him, and last, this Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, has broken his bones. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh of hosts, the, the God of Israel, Behold, I will punish the king of Babylon and his land, as I have punished the king of Assyria, and I will bring Israel again to his habitation. Well, that king of Babylon is still with us. That stump bound with chains is still here. Ezekiel chapter 34 and the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophecy against the shepherds of Israel, prophecy, and say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? And it goes on to speak about the lost sheep being scattered, because there is no valid shepherd. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. And the point is that the ancient Israelites of the dispersions are the sheep of Yahweh and the lost sheep of the New Testament. That is a direct thread all throughout the Bible from the Psalms to the Revelation. In many other passages of both the Psalms and the prophets, the children of Israel are identified as the sheep, the lost sheep, the scattered sheep, the flock of Yahweh. Thus, they are also identified in that same manner in the New Testament, for Yahshua Christ himself identified them in that very manner. From Psalm 80, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock, thou that dwellest between the cherubims, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up thy strength, and come and save us. Turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. O Yahweh God of hosts, how long will thou be angry against the prayer of thy people? Thou feedest them with the bread of tears, and givest them tears to drink in great measure. Thou makest us a strife unto our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Turn us again, O God of hosts, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Thou hast brought us a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparest room before it, and did cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it, and the bows thereof were like the goodly cedars. She sent out her bows under the sea and her branches under the river. Why hast thou broken down her hedges, so that all they which pass by the way do pluck her? The boar out of the wood does waste it, and the wild beast of the field does devour it. Return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts, look down from heaven, and behold, visit this vine, and the vineyard which thy right hand is planted, and the branch that thou madest strong for thyself. It is burned with fire, it is cut down, they perish at the rebuke of thy countenance. Thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand, upon the son of man whom thou madest strong for thyself. 
So will we not go back from thee? Quicken us, and we will call upon thy name. Turn us again, O Yahweh of hosts, cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. That psalm connects the idea of the sheep and the lost sheep and the shepherd of Israel to the idea of the vine. And the last concept which Joshua Christ linked himself is good and corrupt trees. We have just read Psalm 80, which tells us that Israel is a vine planted by Yahweh. It links the sheep of Yahweh's pastures with the branches of the vine, which leads us to the last item in our list of related concepts. As the psalm tells us, the vine is the race of people which Yahweh had brought out of Egypt. Christ later said to his apostles in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. Abiding in him is keeping his law, kind after kind. The Adamic race is nothing without their God and without keeping his commandments. And the words of Christ here are very much like that first promise of salvation to the Adamic race. It is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. And Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil, and now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The first tree is planted by Yahweh, represented by the, parable, by the wheat in the parable of the wheat and tares. The second tree is represented by the tares who were sown by the devil. And Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden for their sinful interaction with the tree of knowledge of good and evil, represented by the serpent, where Revelation chapter 12 connects that to the devil and the fallen angels. The man collectively would be saved by grasping onto his own race, the tree of life, which has God as its originator, for Adam was the son of God. Luke 3.38. When the children of Israel were found mingling with the Canaanite races and adopting their idolatrous practices, Yahweh exclaimed in Isaiah chapter 17, Because thou hast forgotten the God of thy salvation, and hast not been mindful of the rock of thy strength, therefore shalt thou plant pleasant plants, and shalt set it with strange slips. That's how we make the tree good, and that's how we make the tree corrupt. The, the analogies in the New Testament which Christ uses are the same analogies that were already used in the Old Testament. Likewise, he exclaimed in Jeremiah chapter 2, Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into the... the into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me. Israel, taken into captivity, is portrayed as a ruined vine and also as a ruined fig tree in several places, in Ezekiel, in Joel, in Nahum, in Matthew chapter 12. Immediately after explaining the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit would not be forgiven, Yahshua Christ said, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. 
For the tree is known by his fruit. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is violating Yahweh's command of separation for the children of Israel. Your bastard children, those strange slips, they will never be forgiven. They can never go to the kingdom of heaven. They will never be accepted by God. Yahshua related that to the making of the tree, either good or corrupt. The only way that men can set Yahweh's vine with strange slips is to admit race mixing. The only way that man can make the tree, the vine of Israel, anything is to breed and multiply. Therefore, when the ancient Israelites engaged in idolatry, they began race mixing, and they set Yahweh's vine with strange slips, or turned it into the degenerate plant of a strange vine. From Hosea chapter 5, from verse 7, they have dealt treacherously against Yahweh, for they have begotten strange children. Every single bastard, all of these people of other races, is a walking article of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. These strange, these strange slips and the leaves of this degenerate plant of a strange vine are bastards. Yahweh pronounces in Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 23, that a bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to his tenth generation, shall he not enter into the congregation of the Lord. The phrase 10th generation is an allegory. It means forever. Since after 10 generations, a bastard is still a bastard, there is no way to correct hybridization. Paul speaks of the chastisement of the children of Israel in Hebrews chapter 12. And he says, But if you be without chastisement, whereof you are all partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. Salvation is destined for sons and not for bastards. As Paul had explained in chapter 2 of that same epistle, For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. A bastard is not of one. He that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. A bastard cannot be of one, or it can't be a bastard. Therefore, Joshua Christ said in Matthew chapter 15, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. In the end, there is only one tree in the garden of God, and its twelve fruits represent the twelve tribes of Israel. From Revelation chapter 22, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and out of the throne of the Lamb, in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river. There were, I'm sorry, there was the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night, and they shall need no candle, 
neither light of the sun, for Yahweh God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Therefore, those who are truly gatherers are gathering with Christ, and they are gathering sheep. Those who do not gather with Christ are scatterers, because they attempt to gather into the sheepfold something other than sheep. A scatterer is, in essence, a blasphemer of the Holy Spirit, a man attempting to gather grapes from thorns, being on the wide path to destruction by bringing wolves in among the sheep, which results in the making of corrupt trees and setting the garden of God with strange slips. Gatherers must not keep company with scatterers. Evil communications corrupt good manners. I pray that we understand the grounds for true unity and true division. Thank you.